Bible Worm, Bible Worm, reading the Bible with Bible Worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and Theologian-in-Residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we read Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 35, important and challenging texts about what happens on the ground in the real and messy world of human community when something has gone wrong. How can we hold each other accountable with a loving spirit? And when do we need to ask someone to step back from the community because of their behavior? What is the relationship between compassion, fairness, and punishment, between mercy and judgment, here and now and in the future kingdom? These are hard questions that we kind of wish we didn't have to think about, but we are messy creatures, us humans, so we do. Thanks for being with us. Hey, Bobby. How are you today? Hey, Amy. I'm doing okay. My um, my dear spouse is sending out, you might have gotten there actually um, recently, my dear spouse is finally sending out our, I mean, they're really our Christmas cards, <laughs> but I mean, it's, you know, quite a bit after Christmas you're by a, now. So it's, it's our New Year's cards. You're a family. Yeah. I mean, you can't send things out at Christmas. You're busy. Yeah. It's like you've got until, I think as long as they're out before the summer, <laughs> it's pretty good. That's the goal. That's the goal in my, in my family. Anyway. They're very cute. Well, thank I you. I think you should send one to all of our Patreon supporters. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've got the list. <laughs> in other, here, I almost texted you this this week, Bobby. Who's got two thumbs and finally is caught up with thank you notes and Bible Worm stickers? Hey, it's congratulations. Me. Yeah. Probably just for a short time. I never have, all, I don't have enough stamps or I don't have enough cards or I, I just, I'm a mess. I apologize to everyone who's had to wait <laughs> for a sticker. It's a good thing I'm not in the sticker business. The, I mean, the anticipation just makes it all the much better, you know, like you've been waiting. You, they're, they're really in it for the sticker, right? You oh, totally. Yeah, absolutely. The sticker is the main thing. And so, yeah. I will say that we had a special promo, you know, in January where you got all the Patreon stuff for joining at the lowest level. And so we had lots of people join in January. And so... I hope difficult. they stay. It was difficult to keep up. Yeah, now that you got your sticker, this is the part that's in the fine print that we don't tell people, is once you have your sticker, you can never, you can. I thought you were going to say, we're going to come come to your house and take the sticker back. <laughs> no, we would never. No. Oh, I'm just kidding. We love having stickers, people. You can't peel them off. You can't. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Bobby, our passage today is about situations where something bad has happened. Yeah. <laughs> we're we're reading Matthew chapter 18 verses 15 to 35. We read the first half of this chapter in our Ash Wednesday episode. That's right. And so we're just picking right up after that and as as you were observing right before we started, in some ways it the themes do hang together and in some ways it's hard to fit some of the pieces together. So yeah. I'll be interested to see, I don't know, how our conversation helps us or further complicates that. 
Yeah, I, that's exactly <laughs> right. And I'll be interested to, to talk about it as we go to, you know, one of the things that I really like about this passage, but I think is also what makes this passage complicated is sometimes we float a little bit off the ground, you know, thinking theological thoughts about stuff. This passage touches the ground. Like here's what life is like in community and mm. life in community is hard. And so there's the ideals and the realities don't always square up. And I think this passage maybe is struggling a little bit with how do we live out our ideals within the realities of communities that are human and complicated and, and messy. Yeah. Maybe that's what's happening here. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I love that. And we are messy. We are nothing if not messy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I don't know that we need any background since we just literally read up to verse 14 last time and we're picking up on verse 15. Is there anything you want to say as an introduction before we start? I don't think so. Other than, I mean, the the podcast we did on 18, 1 to 14 was, uh, it was really good. And so if you are listen. listening to this one before Great. you listen to that one, you should pause, go back, listen to that one, and then come back and listen to this one. They do they do hang together. I don't know if the podcasts do exactly, because sometimes I forget what I said last time before we start talking again, but the passages hold together anyway. Okay, so then I'm going to pick up straight away um, in chapter 18, verse 15, and I'm reading in the NRSV. If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. Bobby, this is so different than remove the log from your own eye, like from from that approach. I think it is different than that approach, Amy. Although, I mean, this passage is struggling with accountability. Yeah. As well as forgiveness. And right now we're thinking about accountability. And when we talked about that forgiveness passage, the self-examination passage. Yeah, that one was more like judgment, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I just think there's a tension when you're thinking about not judging, when you're thinking about forgiving, when you're thinking about like, but if I forgive people, you know, some sort of indefinite amount, then it's going to come back to hurt me. And like these texts kind of as a collective, it also comes back to the parable of the, the wheat overlaid with weeds and how do you separate, like, there's a lot that this text is struggling with about how do you live in community in ways that recognize that we're all difficult, but also that we can't just let problematic yeah, things yeah, run amok yeah. among it's, us. It's not a free-for-all. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's just coming at it. It's dealing with a different, a different, I guess, a different topic, but a, I don't know, a related one. Do you have a sense of who the you is in this passage? Yeah. I think more specifically, I'm wondering if 
he's talking to them as disciples, like you have a special leadership role or yeah, it could be anybody. So, I mean, narratively, I think if you skip back to the beginning of this chapter, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, mm-hmm. who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And then Jesus responds to that and is mm-hmm. continuing to talk. And so here then, if your brother or sister sins against you, is rep- is a, still a conversation to the disciples. Mm-hmm. But I think it's talking sort of past the disciples to the church in the time of Matthew as well. So you, Christian, I think that, I thinking in terms you of think Christian that's what it's getting. Yes. No, I understand it's only the disciples who are like directly there right. with him. But you don't imagine that this is making some differentiation between the disciples and another follower of Jesus who's not a disciple. I don't think so. Like in my own reading, it's imagining like people who are part of the community are all being addressed here. People who are outside the community obviously are not being addressed here. But like when you have joined yourself together as a community of believers, this is how you should conduct yourselves. That's how, that's how I'm reading it. What, What do you think about that? I think, what do I think about that? I don't know. Can I think about it as we read through? Sure. (laughs) As we like sort of work through it? Yeah. Okay. So, so let's just talk through the sort of steps here. Someone in your community has sinned against you. Is that what your translation has also? It is what my translation has. There is a textual variant issue Mm -hmm. here where many of the oldest manuscripts don't actually have the against you there. And so if you read it that way, it's just if your brother or sister sins, go and correct them when you are alone together, which changes it for me a little bit. Yeah. The commentaries I was reading were mostly siding with the idea that the against you actually shouldn't be there in the original, that it was probably added to sort Mm -hmm. of, I don't know, smooth the text a little bit. So I think it's Mm -hmm. worth just thinking about like the sin maybe is not, they haven't done something wrong to you exactly, but you see them doing something that they shouldn't be doing. Yeah. You know, this, this, I guess the issue that they're struggling here with like accountability within a communal context reminds me of a verse in Leviticus 1917, which is something like, you shall not hate your kinsfolk in your heart, reprove your kin but incur no guilt on their account. Okay, that's not like so easy to parse exactly (laughs) what's going on there. But I think, or Jewish interpreters think that, that the idea is, is basically the reprove your kin is like, you have to, you have to verbalize the things that are distressing you. You can't just not say anything because it will in some way, cause you to incur guilt, either because you act out later because you're upset with them or um, because it will lead the whole community astray. Or if you believe that the relationship with God is communal, it's not just every individual on their own, then other people's behaviors do directly affect you. And so there's an obligation to talk to someone when they're doing something that you believe is a sin. I, I love that connection, Amy. I think that's exactly right. And so in, in some way, I think that if you don't read the against you, at least in the first instance, that follows along really nicely with what you've just said. So 
someone in your community is doing things that they shouldn't be doing? Is that leading other people astray? Is that fracturing the community in some way? Is that, you know, people from the outside look at what that person's doing and it reflects on the whole community? Mm -hmm. I think this encompasses all of that. And so that line, I mean, I love that, lest you bear guilt because of him or, or however you said it. Like you're caught up in this thing too. It's not simply someone is doing something against you, but the community as a whole is bearing the effects of this thing that this person has done. And exactly like you need to, the Leviticus text and this text are saying, when that happens, you need to speak your truth. You need Mm -hmm. to talk to them and and let them know what is happening, which to me is really difficult. I am really terrible. I've gotten better in my life, but I'm really terrible at speaking displeasure, correction to people. It's hard. I would rather complain about them. (laughs) And I will say when the the rabbis deal with that text in Leviticus, they really, they wind up putting a lot of conditions on when you should, when you should actually do that. Like, are you really sure that you are right and they're wrong? Or can you do this in a way that doesn't shame them? Are you likely to spark anger or retaliation? Like, is talking to them going to make it worse? Is it, Like, yeah. they go through this whole list, recognizing exactly what you're saying. Like, this is, it's a hard thing to, hard thing to do. And yes, we have an obligation to do it when we can, but it, it's complicated. No, I think that's really helpful. And, you know, you were asking about things like the log in your eye and the speck in your neighbor's eye and things like that. Like, in some ways, I think that is also Matthew's attempt or Jesus's attempt in Matthew to to give some of that guidance as well, to say you mm. you can't approach someone else as though you are like the paragon mm-hmm. of all righteousness and they are terrible. You have to recognize that you yourself have a log in your eye. And yeah. yet it's important to name things that are damaging to the community when they are damaging to the community. And so that it's not explicitly said here, but the attitude that you take, I think, is referencing back or could be referencing back to that earlier text we talked about to not come with an air of like superiority yeah when you do it it's more just yes yeah speaking your truth as you were as you were saying you were talking about not embarrassing people and you know one of the things i really like about this passage is that the first step there as you were saying referencing leviticus 19 is to just go and talk to your brother your sister your sibling your fellow community member and say, here's what I'm seeing. Can we talk about this? And it's private. It's not embarrassing anybody. It's not a public accusal. It's not talking about somebody behind their back so that the whole community is thinking like, oh, so-and-so, whatever. But it's like, let's just be direct. Let's call it what it is. Mm -hmm. Let's see if we can be family and, and name what needs to be named. Yeah. Yes. No, I love that it starts with with you two alone. And then, okay, so if the person listens to you, you have regained that one, which is interesting. It sort of sounds like that. Didn't we just come from the the sheep? Yeah, yeah exactly. The, the very last yeah. thing we read was the lost sheep. And we don't want to lose anybody. And so if yeah. you speak directly to them, yeah. then we'll regain them. Mm-hmm. But then the next step on there is to bring witnesses. Right. How does that Tell me about that. Like that for me puts my mind in a really different kind of space yeah. than Leviticus 19.17. How, how do you think about the addition of witnesses? What do you think is happening? 
So I think it does kind of move us in a little bit of a different direction. But, you know, the reference, I think the Hebrew Bible reference here is probably Deuteronomy 19, 15, Mm -hmm. uh, which says only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be sustained. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, the way that I'm reading that in Deuteronomy, which you can surely give us some history of interpretation or or insight, uh, but also the way I'm reading it here is, just because you think something's going on, like that's not sufficient to accusing mm-hmm. somebody. You need to have others, like you can't substantiate the claim unless there are others who are also recognizing the same thing. So yeah. you talk to somebody, I think trying to keep the matter private. And then if that doesn't work, then you say, well, in fact, here's a small group and we're, we all notice the same thing. That makes it substantiated. Oh, okay. That just, that really helped me, Bobby, because I, so you're seeing the witnesses as people who witnessed the original harm. Right. Not people who are there to witness the conversation that you're having. Right. That's the way I read it. That makes so much more sense. I was like, it's, it's like now turned into like a trial, but who, uh, yeah. Okay, great. That's so, that's much better. Okay. So yes, two or three other people who have also experienced this witnessed or experienced whatever harm or sin you have experienced to say right. like, yeah, no, this thing is, this thing is real. It's not just my word against your word. Right. That's really helpful. Okay. So then do you see the next part about how, okay. If the member refuses to listen to them, Tell it to the church. But the church, we don't imagine, was all witnesses, right? Right. So then what's the role of the church in this? I mean, I think the church is sort of playing the role of the court here in that judicial sense. So now we've basically, we have seen something that our, uh, I don't know what the word to use. We have seen something that our community member has done. We've talked to them about it. We've shown them that there are other people who also have noticed the same thing. And now we can't resolve the situation. So now we've got to appeal somewhere. So the mm-hmm. question is, where do you appeal? Where you, you, you appeal to the community as a whole. And you say, I think that this is what we have observed. The witnesses say, yes, the person can say whatever they say. And the church is going to make some sort of a decision about whether that person has in fact been doing wrong. That's how I read it. Do you read it differently? Well, I definitely see, uh, what is the word I want to use? I want to say strengths, but I don't know if that's the right word. I definitely see uh, advantages to that reading or logic in that reading. When it says if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, it sounds to me like the church's role is persuasive rather than like, adjudicating. Oh, I see. Yeah, you know, you're right. The text is sort of assuming that, in fact, the person has done something wrong and everybody knows it. (laughs) And so... I guess, yeah. yeah. And so then it becomes like like the the upside of peer pressure or like something like that, that maybe the whole community together, you know, there there is real power in numbers, you know, and if this person doesn't just see that the thing they've done is wrong. Even if multiple people tell them, if the whole church says you've got, you've got to cut it out, (laughs) you can't do that. Then it seems like whether they think it was wrong or not, maybe they would realize what's at stake. 
Right. For them is loss of the entire community. Right. I like to think at least, even if it's not exactly in the text, (laughs) that it would be a possibility for the community as a whole to say, no, in fact, Williamson, this thing that you think your fellow community member has done, that we don't actually think that that is as much of a problem as you think it is. I, I, I like to think that we're not just piling on somebody, although, although maybe we are a little bit, but I like to think that the, the community's role is sort of corroborative to say like, yes, in fact, this is a problem, which implies the option to say, in fact, this is not a problem. But that, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm pressing a little bit past past the text to like how, how I, mean, I think you the may process be should actually a little work. Bit, yeah, right. But if we're talking about how this, how we would want to see this play out, I think that's an important nuance to add that it's not just persuasive, but also a somewhat neutral party. Yeah. Yeah. When I was in Mercy Church community, we actually tried this. It's super difficult, like so, <laughs> so awkward. Yes. And I don't know um, that that it worked at all or that it would ever work again. But we tried this process of like, I have a problem with something that you're doing. And so I'm going to talk to you about it. And then I'm going to have other people come and say, no, we also have the same problem. And then we're going to let the community decide if this mm. is in fact a problem. That last step was really difficult. And, you know, the person felt attacked and, you know, that would be even more amplified if they felt like the determination was like, had been predetermined. Yeah. I I love that you have like lived experience trying to do this. (laughs) I don't know that it was very successful, but. Well, but that's part of what I love about it is that like, you know, as you're saying, this is really on the ground. How are we going to live in community together? How are we going to hold each other accountable without turning into like a judgment factory? And it's hard. In that particular case, the situation was basically, you know, we were a group of people who are mostly homeless and people with all sorts of different addictions and things like that. And there was a person in there who was causing a lot of disruption in the community and making people feel unsafe. And so it was really like it was causing a problem for the communities being together. And so the community was trying to say, look, we love you. We want you to be here. But the damage that is caused by the way you're conducting yourself here is too much for us. Which is sort of how I think, I mean, I don't know which, whether the text is informing my experience or my experience is informing the text. Like this is always, you know, we're going back and forth between these things. But I think, I imagine that we're correcting someone who is damaging the community and the community has to have some way of, Mm -hmm. of dealing with that. But it, but it is so hard, so hard Mm -hmm. to do. Mm Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, and, and the, 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 I guess the way that this has of, of dealing with it at the end, if the member does not listen to the church, they will become as a Gentile and a tax collector. These are not compliments. No, <laughs> they're not. <laughs> no, these are like the ultimate outsiders. Like these are, are the people who are not in your community. They will become, you know, n- not your people. Right. Yeah, I mean, we we imagine Matthew is probably Jewish, writing to a community that still very strongly identifies with Jewish ways of being. And so this language of Gentile and tax collector is very clearly someone outside the community. Yeah. In that sense, this text is about excommunication, kicking somebody out of your community. And it's saying there has to be a mechanism by which we do that. You can't just let people run around causing harm in the community. 
And I mean, I think this is true, right? There, there are certain things that are simply beyond the pale of what a community can tolerate. And there, and there has to be some way of protecting the community from people doing it harm. At the same time, though, the, lang- like, the language of Gentile and tax collector in the context of the Gospels. Yeah, yeah. Say, can what? I'm curious what your reaction there is. I mean, I, I will. This might be wrong, but my association is that like we're inviting them in, like right. we are precisely not policing those lines that have been held before. Right. But now this this text seems to be using exactly those lines. Yeah. Yeah. So here's the conundrum, right? And I don't know exactly yeah. how we're supposed to settle this, but. The whole gospel, Jesus has been extending invitations to Gentiles and to tax collectors. I mean, the tradition is that Matthew himself, whether or not he was the gospel writer, but Matthew was a tax collector. And so, you know, I mean, that's interesting that a tax collector is one of Jesus's disciples. And so all I really am thinking about that is that this is not exactly kicking people out and shunning them forever. Mm. It is more like, recognizing that they are not currently part of the community and they need to be treated as though they're not part of the community. But the goal should be to bring them back to the community, mm-hmm. right? The, the goal should be that they would convert from whatever they were doing that was disruptive to the community and be rejoined. So even the ex, my reading is even the excommunication has the goal of getting them to come back in the same yeah, way that we try to get Gentiles and tax collectors. Yeah. Yeah. But we have to separate for a time. We you are not currently one of us. You are you are harming us. Yeah. Bobby, it's not that I don't think that this is an important boundary to be able to hold in community life because I know that it is. But I'm just having trouble holding it together with Yeah. with like that the parable of the seeds and the weeds and yeah. the you know where it was like you don't actually have to do anything. You don't decide who gets. Yeah uprooted. Yeah. And I, it seems like this is saying sometimes you, you do, maybe it's not permanent and maybe it's not, I'm judging your mortal soul, but your behavior is unacceptable and you can't do that here because it's causing harm. Yeah. That's trying to pluck up a weed right there. That is plucking up a weed. Yeah. We have decided you are a weed and you are harming the field and you got to go. No, I think that's right. And, you know, when we talked about that parable, I think I was referring to, I've been talking about Mercy Church along these lines a lot, but I think that's one thing I raised there too, was when when I talk about Jesus and this idea of forgiveness abundance and letting the weeds grow among the wheat, the response I get oftentimes from my community members at Mercy Church is there are lots of people in my life who harm me repeatedly. Mm -hmm. And if I don't do anything, they're going to keep harming me repeatedly. And so I simply cannot let that be what (laughs) I'm supposed to do. This passage, I think, is recognizing that that is an issue. There is a problem with letting the weeds grow in the field. Yeah. And here's a mechanism by which we say, like, nope, I'm sorry, but weed, you're you're damaging the crop and you got to go. Now, what you do with the fact that you've got both of those passages and we're supposed to follow them both, I, I don't exactly know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, I I don't know either. And part of me wants to say, 
it 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 really just again sort of gestures to how complex how like it's such a complicated thing to live in community do we really think there were going to be some kind of simple instructions (laughs) (laughs) they were going to tell us how to do it like step one step two you know and it's funny that the end of this first section that i read it says where if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask it will be done for you by my father in heaven Mm-hmm. And that that made me think about sort of Jewish teachings about decision making, which is not if two of you, but there there is a lot of teaching about the importance of like the people in the community making a decision that serves the community and that decision holds and God's not going to try to overturn it. Like that's actually how it's designed that if a community of people who are intending to follow, you know, like. In Judaism, it's sort of you go with the majority. You you right. note the minority opinion, like that's real and it's important, but you have to go with what the majority says. And it's not, in some situations, there's not an obvious right thing to do. And that's how we make decisions when there's not an obvious right thing to do. Yeah. I don't know if that's really what it's getting to when it's, a, it, it actually makes me laugh a little bit. If two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it'll be done for you. That is a dangerous promise. <laughs> I know. <laughs> two is not a high bar. Two is a, not a high bar at all. Yeah. After a majority to incline, like that seems a little more. I do like the fact that, you know, a majority can, has other sorts of problems where minority. It does. It for sure does. Drowned out. Yes. Two. Yes. Yeah. I agree. No, I mean, I, I like. This sits uncomfortably with me and my Christian tradition in this idea that God is taking God's lead from what happens here. But I mean, it's fairly clear in verse 18, whatever you fasten on earth will be fastened in heaven. Whatever you loosen on earth will be loosened in heaven, right? So, I mean, this this idea of yeah. fastening and loosening is about making decisions about, you know, what halakha, what legal decisions are binding and not binding in the Jewish context, I, I think. Here it's related to this issue of like who's in the community and out of the community, but it's exactly like the decisions that you make in your community, those decisions are reflected in, in heaven. Like that is a high, like human communities have lots of authority in that model in ways that make me, I mean, I know some human communities, (laughs) like I'm part of a human communities (laughs) and I don't know, I don't know. Um, But yeah, like. I like, I like that. Like some things are too complicated just to have a blanket rule about them. And so God trusts communities to make decisions that are the right decision for the community. Like that's really powerful, even at the same time as it makes me a little nervous. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I should have, I, I feel, I feel uneasy with, with, with where we sort of are leaving off in this first, this first section. Yeah. I feel uneasy. But I'm not sure what else to say about it. One of the things that I like about that last line, I mean, the two makes, the two is not very many, but it's also not one. Yeah. To me, this is really important that just because I think something is right does not make it so. And so this notion that community is always necessary for making decisions, for making Mm -hmm. accusations, for... Um, the presence of God to be, you know, with us in that sort of a way, it's two, two or three. Like it doesn't have to be a lot, but it can't just be you. And I think that's helpful so that we don't mistake our own ideas and our own ideals for God. Mm -hmm. 
two still not very many, <laughs> but you know, maybe, maybe it should be more, but, but it is I, but a lot I like, different than one. Yeah. Yeah. It's very much different than one. And there's that passage in the Mishnah about reading the Torah together. And if you are two together and reading the Torah together, the divine presence is with them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, our practice on Bible worm actually is very much informed by this kind of idea that, you know, me sitting in my office and reading the text by myself or you in your office mm-hmm. reading the text by yourself, a different thing happens than when two of us get together and, and wrestle with it and really think about it, which yeah. is what this passage is about, yeah. that God's going to be present in the, in the very act of wrestling. I think that is helpful as I the really community like wrestles. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that. And I think if if we can think of this as God is there with you in that wrestling and will go with you in your decision because you have done that wrestling right. together, I think I, I think that feels more complete to me. You yeah. know, imperfect in the way that all human endeavors are imperfect, but uh, you know. Maybe that godly in the way that God can make anything godly. Yeah. Yeah. That does elevate a little bit more than two people getting together and asking for donuts. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I think the other thing to keep in mind is that we've just, as you said, come out of the parable of the lost sheep with a point of which seems to be we don't want to lose any sheep. Yeah. And so this whole idea of like, who do we kick out of our community is within that context of, the goal is for everybody to be a part of the community. And so if we're even talking about asking someone to leave, like we understand that that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. We don't take it lightly. So we're not sitting around mm-hmm. thinking like, who can we kick out next? We're, you know, we're taking the, the decision is there's nothing else that can be done here. And we have discerned that as a community and God has been present with us in our wrestling. And here's the decision that, that we have had to make. And the other thing, I'm glad you reminded us again that we just came off the parable of the lost sheep because it starts with the fact the sheep is has left. You're not kicking a sheep out. Like right. there's a sheep that has left. That's true. And if we stay with that idea, then you're trying to bring them back. And then you're bringing witnesses to try to bring them back. I mean, it kind of falls apart when you're witnessing a sheep, but you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you have greater and greater efforts to bring them back and they, they won't come back, which is different than they're sitting there with you and you push them out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is different. Hi everyone. It's Bobby here from Bible Worm. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. Amy and I started Bible Worm a couple of years ago because we wanted to create a space where we could talk deeply about the Bible in ways that bring together our academic backgrounds in biblical studies and our deep engagement with communities and people of faith. We decided to make this resource free because we want everyone to have access to sound biblical scholarship that connects biblical faith to everyday life. We hope you're finding the podcast fits that need. That said, while the podcast is free, making it is not. Amy and I and the rest of Team Bibleworms spend a lot of time and energy studying, recording, and editing the podcast to make it freely available to the public. If you enjoy the podcast, and if you find yourself in a position to support our work, we hope that you will consider becoming a Bibleworm supporter for as little as $4 per month. For a bit more, you can also get early access to episodes, weekly liturgies, video Bible studies, join a monthly discussion group, and more. We realize not everyone is in a position to support the podcast. If you appreciate our work and want to support us, we hope you'll check out our Patreon 
at patreon.com slash Podcast for more details. Thanks so much for listening, and now back to this week's podcast. Okay. Things are going to get more complicated. They are. They are. You ready to go on? I am. I'm reading us a big two verses here, Bobby. Verses <laughs> 21 and 22. Yeah. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. How how do we fit together accountability and forgiveness, Bobby? There, that's a question. Just a little (laughs) question for you. No, I mean, I think that's exactly what this text is wrestling with. And, you know, it is giving us both. You've got to hold people accountable when they're harming the community. You've got to forgive people 77 times. You know, that 77 can be read as 70 times 7, 490. Mm -hmm. I mean, what it's saying is there are no limits to the amount of forgiveness. Peter thinks he's being so great. Like, whoa, seven times. Uh, which I mean, maybe like, that's a lot. Like there's, there's definitely people that I have, you know, not been able to forgive that many times. And Jesus says, no, no, not, not that many. Like, look how many it is. But we just got through a passage saying you've got to hold people accountable when yeah. they're damaging the community. And I don't know how to resolve that tension. I mean, I just think that is a, a, a tension that exists. We want to be a loving, forgiving community and yet there is an accountability to one another that makes that forgiveness possible. And so forgiveness without accountability mm-hmm. is, I mean, that's never, never ends well. Accountability without the possibility of forgiveness, that also becomes really harsh. Yeah. So you've got to have them both, but they're, but they're hard to hold together. And I think this text is a demonstration, really, of how hard that is to hold together. Yeah. Yeah, I could almost, I could see it playing out in at least two different ways. One being, you know, someone sins against you or whatever, and you go and tell them and they, they agree with you, they shouldn't have done it. And you forgive them. And then that cycle repeats again and again. So it's not like you go to talk to them and they say, and they don't come back. They do for some period of time and then they do it again. Right. That would be one situation where I could see, I don't, I don't know, maybe that's weak accountability if you keep letting them do that. The other is, is much sort of, I don't know, harsh is maybe not the right word, much harder on the accountability side, which is, I believe you can hold someone accountable and also forgive them. But I think it depends what we mean by forgiveness. Mm. You know, like you can, I can forgive someone by like not holding a grudge or not, maybe I forgive a debt that you have, you know, not paid me back, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I will then make another big loan to you. Like it's, I don't know. I imagine there's some way to hold people accountable without punishing them. Right. Now, I think that's really important. And I, you know, I think that's, I think this text imagines And in that first section that we read, I think that it imagines that if we talk to each other directly Mm -hmm. and if we bring the community together, like that you would never actually have to kick people out of the community 
mm-hmm. because we all want to belong in the community and we all want to be accountable to each other and we all want to do right by each other. And so we would, we would get in that situation of accountability and forgiveness can go together. And then, you know, we're also playing with the limits of that. Now, I don't know if it's possible to both forgive someone and also excommunicate them. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I mean, sure it's possible that uh, you are damaging this community and we can forgive you for the damage that you have done, but we can't let you stay here and continue damaging the community. So maybe that's a possibility as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the hate the sinner, not the sin thing. Yeah. No, no, not the, the reverse of that. Don't do that. <laughs> the, <laughs> the reverse yeah. of that. Yeah. yeah, that's such a loaded thing to say, and I have so many issues with that. <laughs> I know, <laughs> you know, but, I know. Yeah. we'll bleep it out. Yeah, yeah. No, a little it is, bit that. That is a loaded thing to say, yeah. Does it surprise you at all, Bobby? Maybe it's just this section. I have this I have this sense in these past few texts that the gospel is very concerned, is more focused on what to do if you feel you are being harmed or you yeah. see sin in huh. others yeah. than it is what to do about how to apologize or mm. make things right or, you know, manage your own stuff. I had not paid attention to that, but that's that's true. That's interesting. I mean, I wonder if it's just the audience that he was talking to or. I guess the closest we've really mm-hmm. gotten is recognizing that you have a log in your own eye. Yeah. And therefore not picking at the specks in other people's eyes. Yeah. But that's different than asking for forgiveness or reconciliation for the things that the log sticking out of your eye has has damaged in the community. Yeah. Maybe they didn't have that problem. That's a modern problem. We don't know how to apologize. They were very good at apologizing in ancient times. <laughs> Maybe so. Should I take us through this last part, which is a, a slightly terrifying parable? <laughs> it is. Yeah. Let's do it. Okay. So I'm going to pick up in verse 23. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold together with his wife and children and all his possessions and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he said, pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Mm. Dang. (laughs) Okay. I want to, 
I want to put out a theory first and then and then read the story. Or well, maybe not a theory, but like a, a thought. I'm going to put out a thought that I had. Okay. And it is tied to the word, the Hebrew word for patience, mm. which is in here twice, which is savlanut. And what always strikes me about the word is that it basically means to in, to endure suffering, like to to bear a burden. So by asking someone to have patience, you are asking them to hmm. take on some, there is some amount of suffering in this picture that will be distributed between people. And you are asking the other person to take on some of it so that you don't have to have all of it. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's my theory. Now, put that aside. It's interesting to me that even in the first part of this story, that's like the model of how this is supposed to work, the good Mm -hmm. part of the story, the king's first impulse is to sell the slave and his family and all of their possessions. Like this is a best case scenario, (laughs) right? But then it says he doesn't do that out of pity. Mm. How? Do you, do you, I mean, how do you understand that? Or do you think, I mean, I feel like the word pity is so loaded and it's just an English translation of, you know, something else. But I don't know. I keep reading the first part of this story as like, this is how it's supposed to be. This is where the good stuff happens. And even where the good stuff happens, I don't know. It doesn't really feel like a, a good model to me. Yeah, so this word pity is actually a really fun word in Greek. It's splagnizomai. Mm-hmm which is a reference to the like the guts or the intestines. Mm. And so pity, I think, yes, but maybe compassion. Yeah. Maybe has a different kind of ring to it. I think it's related to the Hebrew. Is it Raham? Raham. Mm. Yeah, that would be compassion. Yeah. And which is also a reference to the like yeah. innards. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't know if it reads differently if you say he had compassion on the servant, which is what the common English Bible reads rather than pity. You know what? I I mean, there's a couple of things here. One is that I, th- I think this king is not meant to be God exactly because mm. like he's violating Jewish law like all over the place, like throwing people into slavery for not being able to pay their debts and like things like this. Like he's a, he seems to be some sort of a Gentile king. Although then at the very end, my father's going to do the same thing to you. So, yeah. So for whatever that's worth, I don't think we should make a move directly from yeah, here's what this no, king is doing think. to here's what God is doing, which, which sometimes people do. I'm not, I'm not saying you were doing that, but yeah. sometimes people were doing that. I mean, so in the way that the world works, yeah, I mean, the servant owed... A huge amount of money. Huge it was it was money. like millions of dollars in yeah, our. Yeah, no, I was doing the math. Like, money. of course you were. You always. Do I the was. Math. Yeah, like a talent is basically fifteen years wages, and oh, gosh. this is ten thousand talents. Yeah, so it's one hundred and fifty thousand years of wages. Mm-hmm. So, is that right? And if you make, I don't know, like if you made $50,000 a year, then you would end up, it'd be like seven and a half billion dollars. Like it's some crazy yeah, it's something ridiculous. amount of money that you can't even fathom. So he owes a huge, 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 ridiculous amount of money. And I mean, the logic of Kings is if you owe me money, like I've got to punish you for that. If I don't punish mm-hmm. you for that, everybody's going to think they can do it. And then what's going to happen? And so I, you know, there is a, a sense in which the punishment is deserved. 
then the pleading results in compassion. Yeah. The, the compassion without the, like, I don't know, like this, I have, I struggle with this theologically too, but um, that the compassion requires a possibility of judgment always makes me a little bit uncomfortable, but that's what this text seems to be. like. He could not mm. have had compassion if there were not a penalty that were deserved and mm-hmm. then some, some sort of like acknowledgement mm-hmm. of that penalty. I do think there, you know, there are a number of places in, in Jewish tradition where I'm always trying to get kids to see this and, and the kids that I work with are really fairness oriented. I think yes. it's kind of like developmentally, they really are. And so, so they would read this and say like, that's fair. Like everyone knew when you borrowed that money, this is what you agreed to you agreed to it, and so it's fair that you should be punished. And, like, maybe it is fair. Right. But, like, over and over again, the biblical text says, yeah, but fairness is not always at the top of the list. Fairness is in the mix. Fairness happens sometimes. Right. But compassion always trumps yeah. fairness. Yeah. That I like thinking of it as fairness. Yeah. And here compassion trumps fairness, at least in the first instance. Yeah. Yeah. And in the first instance, there's, I'm almost wondering if it's like the, you know, we've talked about the Cal Vahomer, like that yes. if this is the case, all the more so should yes. it be in this other situation. In this first situation, there's a huge power differential between them. Right. It's a king and a slave. Yeah. It's a huge amount of money yeah. that's owed. And the king doesn't just let him have more time. The king forgives the debt. Yeah. So yeah, all the the stakes are really high, and the outcome is insanely generous. And right. yeah, and that's that's situation one. Yeah, which and so you started out saying the best case scenario is not a very good scenario. Is that right? Yeah, I think you've talked me out of that a little bit. I mean, I don't like that. As you were saying, I don't like that his first impulse was to throw them. To to sell the man and his yeah. whole family <laughs> yeah. to try to recover his money when like he's already quite rich he's the king he doesn't need that money yeah. it was expecting the compassion before right. we even got to the question of fairness and this text is going to take us through no first right first people want what is quote unquote due to them and then right. yeah yeah and for the purposes of the parable I think that the the, mag- the magnitude of the loan forgiveness doesn't make sense unless there is first the initial reaction of, here's yeah. what you really, I ought to punish you. What do you think he did with all that money? That's like a really big loan. $7.5 billion. <laughs> I don't know. He probably, probably put it in crypto or something. That's a, that's a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what's up with that guy, but it's a huge amount of money. It's a yeah. huge amount of money that he has lost somewhere. I don't He I'm lost sure it. Where. Yeah, it's not good. It's not good. So then in the next part of the story, it's two two slaves, like two sort of, I guess, social yeah. equals. Mm-hmm. The amount of money we're talking about is something like a hundred days pay. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. So if you use our fifty thousand dollars or whatever a year, then we're talking like fifteen or Sixteen thousand dollars, something like mm-hmm. that, compared to seven point five billion that we were talking about. <laughs> like, <laughs> it is like so small that it just like in the realm of significant digits, it doesn't even exist at all. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. not much. It's still a fair amount of money. Like, if if somebody owed me 
you know, a third of my yearly salary, like, yeah, I would want that back. <laughs> you know, it's not nothing, but it's right. not $7.5 billion. And it is probably more needed by this other slave than That's true too. it would yeah. be, you know, by the king. But. That's true too. Yeah. And then he just does not handle this situation well at all. <laughs> he does I not. I mean, he starts out even with an act of violence. He grabs him by the throat. Yeah. yeah. He has no... He, he the, the other guy says the same words to him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he's having none of that. So, like, clearly we can read that and be like, oh, that's not right. Like, that's not how you should. Yeah. That's not how you should be, re- you know, paying it forward here. Yeah. But the the pun- punishment, I can only see it as punishment. It's really, that's tough, man. In his yeah. anger, he was handed over to be tortured until he'd pay the entire debt. Yeah. I don't know. Had, had, had. That I guess it goes now we've gone back to fairness. Yeah. Like we went from fairness to compassion, but compassion requires that like the other person also participate in this compassion compassionate way of being. And if they won't, it goes back to quote unquote fairness, tit for tat. CEB says the guard responsible for punishing prisoners, which sounds kind of different to me. But the Greek is basanistes, which means <laughs> torturer. Like, it's fairly clear. The CEB has softened that a little bit. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was hoping I was going to get an out there. And then, you know, like, my first move is, well, we don't need to read the king as God exactly. So, like, of course a human king, like a Gentile tyrant, of course he's going to torture people. But then, <laughs> verse 35, my heavenly father is going to do exactly the same. Like, Jesus makes the equation. Uh, which makes me so, which makes me so frustrated. You know, I mean, and we've seen this before. We've seen the weeds cast into the fire and we've yeah. seen the ax, the root of the tree. Like there is this theme that has been sort of subtly moving through, not even subtle. It's just been moving through the gospel of Matthew. It's, it's beautiful in one sense, like forgiveness and compassion and mercy, but there's always this threat of the, of the other possibility of, of fire and torture and, you know, it's interesting here, as was the case back in Matthew 6, too, where that there is all in the world you have to do in this parable to avoid the torture is to be as forgiving to your fellow slave as the king was to you. Mm-hmm. And you were free and clear, you know, you didn't owe anybody any money. And so this sort of what you bind in heaven is bound, or what you bind on earth is bound in heaven and so on, like... God is following our lead. And so if we're going to be, if we're going to accept the forgiveness that the king has offered us, we can't, we can't just play that side of the fairness, mercy when it works in our favor. We've also got to demonstrate the same kind of mercy. We we can no longer participate in the fairness system or, or whatever. We can't be adding up debts anymore. We can't be counting how many times we forgive people anymore. You just, you just can't do it. Uh, and if we're going to still op- operate on that logic, then God's going to operate on that logic too. I really like that you connected that back to what we read earlier about how what we are doing and deciding and how we're navigating all this stuff, all these conflict, sometimes conflicting teachings on earth will be reflected in heaven. Like we actually do have a lot of, we have a lot of say. And so when you... When you're a big jerk, <laughs> like that's 
that's a different way for me to think about it than this is vengeful or right because I feel like that I feel like you could read this and say it is because it's not even just they threw the man in prison because that's what he had done to the other slave like I feel like he got he got worse he did at this point and he got worse than he would have gotten in the first place yep if he had just you know if when he wasn't going to pay back the 1.7 billion dollars he was going to be sold with his family into slavery which is bad enough, or thrown into which jail which is bad mm-hmm. which is bad but it's not as bad as being tortured. Yeah. And so he made his own situation worse by his lack of compassion for his equal. Yeah. By asking for something that he was not willing to live into himself. Right. Exactly. You know, as an image of God, I find I find this troubling to me, although I like I get it. As a parable to motivate me to live the values of the kingdom of heaven, I find this really effective, right? Like the <laughs> options here are you can be get forgiven $1.5 billion that you owe, and then you have to forgive other people too, or you can hold what other people owe you over their heads and be tortured. <laughs> I'm like, okay, like, yeah, like hold, like forgive my $1.5 billion and I, and I, I'll do the same. Like it's a, it's highly motivating. The difference in sums of money here too, like, I mean, part of this, this goes back right to the log and the spec metaphor mm-hmm. that we had earlier, that the assumption here is that what I owe is enormous. And so how could I hold some small amount that someone else owes over and against them? So recognizing our own culpability mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. a, that's a theme that keeps showing up here too. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, this is more just sort of a, I feel like a reflection for my, for me to make about my own self and like what's going on in my mind. But it's interesting to think about why I find the idea of these kinds of harsh consequences so distressing when imagined, you know, when trying to imagine a God who would do this. And I find them distressing in the Hebrew Bible too. Sure. And yet, of course it is true that if, if God is for real, 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 trying to bring about this heavenly kingdom on earth, and this is how people are behaving, asking for compassion and getting compassion and then turning right around and refusing compassion, those things are inc- incompatible. Like you, yeah. someone's got to hold that line. Right. And, and, and what I mostly want is for it not to be happening in the first place. Right. But, but if you're really committed to that initial vision, yeah, there there have to be boundaries. So we've ended with boundaries and we started with boundaries. <laughs> yeah. Sort of. I mean, this idea of the kingdom of heaven is such a beautiful idea. And, you know, the idea that's laid out in Deuteronomy about a community that supports each other and looks out for the most vulnerable and takes care of the widow, the orphan, and the stranger, and all of the things. Like, there's such beautiful ideals and so difficult for human beings to live into these, you know, yeah. this compassion. And so that there's always the threat. And I wish the threat, that's exactly what you, you're saying. I wish the threat did not have to be there in order for us to figure out how to do this thing that God has offered to us. Mm-hmm. And yet it's, it's there. And importantly, it's there in the Hebrew Bible. And it is also there in the New Testament. You pointed this yeah. out a few weeks ago, but I think it's worth just reminding ourselves that there's this sometimes image that the God of 
the New Testament is all warm and fuzzy all the time, but this is not, this is not, not warm, warm and fuzzy. fuzzy. Like my father in heaven is going to torture you in the way that this king tortured the unforgiving servant, not warm and fuzzy. Yeah. And so like, we got to deal with it. So, sometimes Christians avoid it by saying, well, New Testament, God's not like that, but, yeah. but there it is. Bobby, I think we're getting about to the point where we try to say some last thoughts about the passage. Before we move into that concluding part, is there anything else you want to say about this parable in particular? I think the only other thing that I would say is that Matthew, Matthew's Jesus has said something like this before. It was in chapter 6, 14 and 15, which we talked about, I think, in our summer series, and some people have just talked about recently in the narrative lectionary, Jesus just says, if you forgive others their sins, your heavenly father will also forgive you. Mm-hmm. If you don't forgive others, neither will your father forgive your sins. And so this idea about the way that we forgive comes back to us. It's not just a quirk of this parable. This is something that has been an idea that gets repeated in Matthew's gospel. And so I don't really know what the point of that is other than simply to say, like, Matthew really seems to think that's the way it works. God is sort of looking to us and the way we treat others for cues about how um, to treat us when when it comes time for us to be judged or forgiven. Yeah. I like the way that connects to the way we've talked throughout about the heavenly kingdom and the earthly kingdom, like really being reflections of each other mm-hmm. and that there's a, there's a continuity between them. And so, right. Yeah. Bobby, what thoughts would you leave our listeners with this week? I really struggle with this passage, I think, because I struggle with resolving conflict. And I just want, I want it to be all mercy and compassion all the time, Mm -hmm. you know? And I founded a community called Mercy Community Church, uh, partly for that reason. Like, that's what I wanted to emphasize. And it quickly becomes clear that there are, I don't want to say, there's not a downside to mercy, but maintaining community life when the only thing you can ever express is mercy and forgiveness, Mm -hmm. it doesn't actually work. And so this passage to me gives us that tension and it brings that first passage about accountability. And it says, in fact, for this community to work, everybody's gotta be in. You can't have people that are playing the system if you're gonna make this community of mutuality and forgiveness and really work. And so there's got to be some means by which we can ask people to reform their ways or to leave the community. Mm-hmm. Leaving, asking people to leave the community to me is, I just, I mean, it feels so counter gospel to me. And yet, and yet there it is. This whole time we've been talking about bringing people in and now we're saying like, but okay, but sometimes... Sometimes you might have to ask someone to become like a Gentile or a tax collector. Yeah. In the context of what we'd read before and in the context of the 70 times seven and the forgiving $1.5 billion, like the way that I read all of that together is something like the goal should be to hold the community together. We should always be doing everything we can. We should be aware of our own shortcomings that are the own our own debts that we owe we should be doing everything we can to bring in the sheep who has wandered away from the fold 
We want to stay together. We want to be a community of forgiveness and compassion. And so when we take the step of asking someone not to be part of the community, we have to do it in this careful way that respects them as a human being. Uh, here's our first conversation, just you and me. Here's a small group that no, we're serious about this. Now here's the community as a whole saying we can't have this. It's a very thoughtful, deliberative, respectful, careful process that you wish you did not have to do. Mm-hmm. And every step along the way, you're hoping that the reconciliation is going to happen and that forgiveness is going to be possible. And even when you treat someone as a tax collector and a Gentile, you remember that the whole gospel has been about bringing tax collectors and Gentiles back into the community. Mm-hmm. So even as you separate, you are hoping for reconciliation. And yet there's a recognition here that sometimes people do harm in communities that cannot be sustained. It just can't, we just can't have it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, I appreciate the realistic nature of this text, even as it cuts against my dreams of a community of simple mercy and compassion and forgiveness all the time. Yeah. But some, sometimes the nature of human communities is, is we've got to separate, but but we can't do it with a sort of gleefulness. Right. It's, a, a, it's a sad thing when that happens, and we hope to, it will be able to reverse course. Yeah. Yeah. As you were talking, Bobby, it made me think of uh, in the mystical Jewish tradition that 10 emanations of God, this is like really mystical. So I could, I, yeah. I will not be able to explain this, except I will say that they are sort of set up as like different kind of ends of a continuum that have to be in balance with each other. And in that balance, chesed, which is like this like unbounded sense of generosity and connection and loving kindness, like total openness is balanced with gavura, which Mm. is like boundaries really. Like there are rules, there's some strictness, there's discipline and that you don't ever want to be all the way on one side or all the way on the other yeah. side of that because things will get and nor do you want God to be all the way on one side right. or on the other side of that because things get weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What do you see when you are looking at this text? You know, there's a a book that is very popular in the Jewish world right now by a rabbi named Daniel Ruttenberg that came out maybe last fall called On Repentance and Repair. And it has me thinking a lot about forgiveness and apologies and how they work and don't work in our culture, American culture. And one of her observations is that we as a, as a culture are a little obsessed with the idea of forgiveness mm. and that we want to skip to that step really quickly. Yes. And that, and that we shouldn't, <laughs> you know? And that there are a lot of things that need to come before that. And I know that's not really what this passage is is talking about, but I couldn't help as I was reading it, think about what what if if there, I don't know, if there are Christian teachings or if there are like the teachings in in all of our religious traditions that pertain to what to do when you have caused harm. Right. And it can't just be the other person has to forgive the harmed person has to forgive that puts like a lot of a lot of burden on them and doesn't actually repair any of the harm that's been 
yeah. caused. So it's a, it's a really interesting book. It's based on these steps of repentance by a Jewish thinker named Maimonides. If anyone's interested in, in thinking about that stuff, but it's 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 very applicable, I think, to a lot of the interpersonal and societal harms that our our culture is navigating now. That's really helpful, Amy. And what you were saying there um, was taking me back to that textual variant we were talking about. If your brother or sister mm-hmm. sins, sins against or you, sin against you, yeah. And if you don't read the against you, it opens the possibility that we ought to be witnessing for one another. So if Mm -hmm. I see someone harming you, I should speak up even if they're not harming me. Mm -hmm. And so the passage, the way it's written here, if they sin against you, you should go, puts the burden, as you're saying, on the person who has been harmed. I think there's a possibility of a reading here where as a community, we watch out for each other. And when we see someone in our community being harmed, we intervene Mm-hmm. it doesn't even have to involve the person who's actually been harmed. It's if, if I have seen you doing something, I need to call you mm-hmm. on it. This is different than like taking responsibility for my own actions, right? Which I think is a, is a step maybe beyond where this text can get us, a, an important one. But it is a way of saying, how can I look out for people who are being harmed, even if it's not me? Yeah. This passage certainly opened uh, important conversations for us. I don't know... Uh, I don't know that we can put a tidy bow on it, but it's not a tidy issue. It's not. It's a difficult one for yeah. sure. And I think that, you know, I think this text acknowledges that. Yeah. And certainly certainly our podcast does. Our podcast does. <laughs> yeah. 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 Living in community, man. We are a hot mess. <laughs> a beautiful hot mess. A beautiful hot mess. I like it. Next time, we are reading Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16, The Laborers in the Vineyard. Oh, such a good parable. Such a good one. I look forward to it. All right, Amy, I'll see you then. Bye. Thanks for a good conversation. You too. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Many, many thanks to all our Patreon supporters for helping make this podcast possible. Join us again next time as we move on to Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16, which you may know as the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Until then, keep on digging.